0: What does healing mean to you?
1: If your recovery means you can leave your room and eat dinner with your family when you were too paranoid to do that for five years, then you are healing.
2: Revealing Voices the Mental Health Podcast, raising unanswered questions, sharing unanswered prayers. We are faith-based,
0: peer-led, story-driven, and stigma-breaking. I am Tony Roberts. I am Eric Riddle. And we are Revealing
2: voices. Voices. Episode 15. So, Tony, I've been hearing some stories about uh, dating life. Yes. What What is happening?
0: I'm back in action. Yeah. I'm uh, having been separated for seven years and divorced for two of those. Uh, I've decided the time is right for me to uh, seek out um, companionship. Yeah. Female friends who, who might one day become... Life Partners. So I joined Match.com and OkCupid. And uh, it's kind of the 21st century way of meeting. uh, Are we we in the 21st century? Third millennium. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Uh, Way of uh, meeting people. And I'm having a great time Mm -hmm. meeting women. Uh, So far, nothing more than correspondence and first dates. But
2: there's a lot of good women out there.
0: I think so. You know, I think yeah. so. And you you look past the scammers. What happens when you get scammed on Match.com? Well, com? you can lose your identity. You can lose your money. Yeah? Yeah. It's like any other way of if people get your more information about you because you're craving companionship uh, from someone who looks a lot younger than you and shows that they're interested in you. Yeah. Uh, the rule of thumb is that if it looks too good to be true, it probably is. Right. <laughs> yeah. And Eric, you just wrapped up a project here.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So I think my wife will be happy that I'm putting up the high cubes Yeah. R- rolling out 120 uh, word dice on the dining mm-hmm. table mm-hmm. to be kind of loud. I hit number 100 of the 100-day mm-hmm. project. And it's been really good. I've had a lot of fun. They're they're interesting haikus when you have a very small subset of words to choose from. Mm-hmm. And so putting them on Instagram, I mean, it's it's kind of cool to see, you know, the way I've arranged the blocks.
0: Maybe we can put a picture on our uh, show notes.
2: Yeah, you know, I, I think it's I'm gonna to make translate. a post. I'll make a blog post okay. and, and throw there on a, a few of these pictures. Yeah, do that. It's it's been a nice a nice year doing that. Yeah,
0: we're going to have a very special episode for, from my point of view. Yeah? Yeah, Laura... This is special. I
2: agree. This is
0: very special.
2: Why is it special to you, Tony?
0: Well, Laura Pagliano is a, a an advocate that is the administrator for a Facebook page called Advocates for People with Mental Illnesses, and they have almost 20,000 members, of which Eric and I are two. She has real passion for her work, and she shares uh, her own story of loved ones, her son that battled schizophrenia.
2: Mm -hmm. She really curates the posts that go on the page. Yeah,
0: she's the one. And you're a fairly regular contributor to content there. Usually they post outside uh, material on the weekends, so if my blog has a more general appeal Mm -hmm. for people in that realm of interest, and I will submit it, and she so far has published everything I've said.
2: Yeah, we're going to have a pretty short intro here. Part of it is because this interview went on for a little bit over an hour, and there's a lot of great content. Great stuff. And and so we are going to, you know, pair it back to a normal 45-minute episode. Uh, Laura, thank you so much. We have been talking about maybe even doing another episode uh, next year. Yes. uh, Just to follow up.
0: Okay, so we have with us today Laura Pagliano. Laura is an advocate for persons with mental illness Runs a Facebook dedicated page for persons with uh, interest in, in that. How many members are part of that page?
1: Um, there are 20,000 on, on one of our pages.
2: And, and the official name of that group is Advocates for People with Mental Illness?
1: Yes.
0: And you are one of the administrators or are you the only administrator?
1: Um, I'm primarily the only one left. There were three.
0: It's a very active page. I've I found a lot of. Very helpful resources on there.
1: Thank you for saying that.
0: First of all, just to get to know you more, tell us something about your upbringing.
1: Well, I was raised in the Midwest on a small cattle farm and we grew up baling hay, uh, gardening, canning, all the farm studying that people are trying to learn nowadays. I grew up in that era. I went to college, I got degrees in um, English and philosophy and i now work as a training consultant my upbringing was wonderful i have three older sisters and one younger brother catholic very devout mother and father Um, i'm a small town person (laughs) and
2: what 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 town if i may ask um
1: i was raised in mazon illinois which is about 30 miles southwest of joliet illinois which people are more familiar with, the Blues Brothers okay. movie and things like that.
0: Sounds like a very healthy, wholesome life. Later on we'll talk about, you know, mental illness entering the picture for for you and your life through your son Zach. But did you know looking back that there were signs of any mental illness in your family? Well,
1: I would say yes now, with some reservations. We always knew growing up that my father was what you would call infectious. <laughs> if he was happy, everyone was happy and, Uh, mm -hmm, and, and a moody person per se. Um, I, after Zachariah was diagnosed, I was diagnosed with bipolar type two or mm -hmm. cyclothemic personality disorder, which is um, being hyped up 24 hours a day. And then I have really, I have hypomania Um, all through school. I never slept much. I worked 40 hours a week and went to high school. Um mm. and got, AIDS, wow. you know, so yeah, lots of energy. So now, I mean, looking back, of course, it's easy to say um, there are some things there. But when you grow up out in the country, you know, you we have a country doctor. Even if I had really gotten myself into trouble with bipolar type two, I yeah. have some cousins with mental illness. That I discovered after Zachariah, one is very severe bipolar type one, you know, not functioning well. Another one with what they think is schizophrenia, again, not functioning well. But again, in rural America, you are very late to a diagnosis probably and certainly very little treatment available.
2: You're in Baltimore now. Yes. How did you transition from uh, rural Illinois to Baltimore?
1: Um, um, Well, and really, I did. I left rural Illinois and went to Baltimore. There wasn't like a medium-sized town in the middle of that. Uh, (laughs) I became a consultant. I was traveling to suburbs of the Chicago area doing software training. So I got a call to come out east on a project, and it was literally so much money that I couldn't say no and mm-hmm. um, my daughter was about 19, and so she was going to leave community college and go downtown Chicago for art school. And Zachariah was 13, about to finish seventh grade. So we transitioned, Zachariah and I transitioned out to Baltimore to work for Johns Hopkins on a software project.
0: So you mentioned some about your children. Tell us about your experience in becoming a mother.
1: Becoming a mother for the first time at age 20 um, just radically, radically changed my life for which I'm very grateful. I was kind of a hellion, uh, just to be frank and, uh, that's putting it mildly. And when I became a mother, I just became dead serious about raising this child, giving her everything she could ever need and by myself. And um and she's a wonderful person. Just she's an amazing mm-hmm. uh grown-up. She's thirty-three now.
0: And I'm sure she is. She gets it honestly.
1: <laughs> she's above and beyond me. I've always said, you know, it's a shame when you have kids and they're nicer and smarter than you are. <laughs>
0: but that's basically <laughs> I what that you find feeling. out.
1: <laughs> that's what you find out about parenthood that um you're not that great. And um so I, and I took my I took my job as a mother, very seriously. Um, One reason I never married was because I really didn't want them to have a stepfather who Mm -hmm. maybe didn't appreciate them the way I did or didn't appreciate their nuances as children, you know, as people. Mm -hmm. And I was very protective of that with them. So uh, being a mother was seriously, it gave me every good thing that I have.
2: You went out to Baltimore to have, some business relationship with Johns Hopkins. Yeah, you, you know, yeah the
1: irony, right?
2: I watched the, your video, right, of you speaking, and that was at Johns Hopkins, correct? Yeah. It's a pretty strong relationship with a significant was, medical institution. Yeah, it was
1: a very big honor to be asked by Dr. Akira Sawa to speak at the Hopkins Symposium. The director of SAMHSA spoke, Jeff.
2: Oh, wow.
1: Jeff Gordon. Um, who runs the NIA NIMH spoke it was so I was very honored to be included in that and the relationship I have with Hopkins is just an amazing amazing thing um, every parent should have that kind of chance
0: yeah
1: right to have the ear and the heart of these doctors.
0: you mentioned to me one time in the and maybe this will transition us back to Zechariah's story, but you you mentioned that you know in in your case with Zechariah, you you did have good uh, quality mental health care. That was not a problem, but that the sad truth is that many people don't have the access you had.
1: Well, the sad truth is many people don't have the access that we had. Um, they don't have the vocabulary. They don't have the understanding of systems and institutions, and They get discouraged. Um, You have to work this system like no other thing I've ever done. And um, other people also don't have, um, they don't have the uh, chance to even get the, get quality care. It's too far away from their home. I was 15 minutes from the best doctors on, on earth. Mm -hmm. Um, Also the other sad truth is that people don't recover, you know, Uh, SAMHSA and other mental health groups have adopted the um, recovery model, which is fine as far as it goes. But let's tell the truth, which is to say people with serious mental illnesses live much shorter lives on the whole. Mm -hmm. They're involved with the criminal justice system. They don't respond well to medicines across the board. But adopting the recovery model gives the entire world the idea that everyone can recover. You just have to try harder. If anyone should have lived for trying hard, it should have been my son, Zachariah. You know, I never gave up. I went to every appointment. I never missed a day of, of hospital visits in 13 hospitalizations over seven years. Um, Mm -hmm. I devoted my entire life to saving him. And he likewise worked as hard as he could to stay healthy and, it just, yes. it just wasn't possible.
2: Laura, you mentioned on our call yesterday that he died in his sleep. Yes. At age twenty-three. Age
1: twenty-three. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Heart failure, cardiomegaly. He had an enlarged heart, and um, he went to sleep. And and this, I'm very grateful for. Not mm-hmm. only suffering is over, but also that he died while he was sleeping. Literally, the coroner mm-hmm. said, died in his mm-hmm. sleep. He didn't die before sleep. He wasn't scared. He didn't have to panic.
2: Zach is a huge part of your story. We're definitely going to link to your Johns Hopkins speech uh, in our show notes. Why don't we talk uh, about Zach, I know it really has sparked your, your, your Facebook group your nonprofit organization. Can you tell us about some of his interests? How did it go with his friendships? Well,
1: of course, after his diagnosis, he had no friends because when you're a young person trying to start your life, six months in the life of a young person is like five years for you and I. Mm -hmm. The changes, the fast pace, they grow, they change, they get jobs, marry, college, you know, apartments, first cars, first everything. And he literally could not even start his adult life. So Mm -hmm. most of his friends drifted away. And also, as his therapist reminded me many times, you know, what we have to talk about is what we've done during the day. And Zach doesn't do anything during the day. He goes Mm -hmm. to therapy. What connection does he have to his peers? It just gets lost. And it's not that way just for my Zachariah. It is that way for 90% 90% of the young people who get a serious mental illness, they end up just yeah. so lonely. Their parents are their only friends. Siblings even yes. reject them sometimes. They get worn out with the drama. But before he was sick, Zachary was popular, well-liked, You know, interested in music. He was a musician. He played the piano beautifully. He um, was a drummer. I don't want to say he could pick up any instrument and play it. But it was it was about like that. He loved his dog. He played baseball on several teams. He was very athletic, healthy, popular, almost never sick, punctual to a fault, and a super compassionate person, which he was all through his illness, very compassionate. Even when he was delusional, it was from a stance of compassion. And he never lost some of those great qualities that he had. Um he was just a great kid, never in trouble, loved to behave, <laughs> loved to behave. He loved rules. He, he was
0: not the Hellion like you. Huh?
1: <laughs> no, and I said, the quiet one's gonna get me. <laughs> the other one that <laughs> argues with me, that my daughter that argued with me all the time, I said, you know what she's up to. So he was quiet and he was um, really shy as a child, but he, he outgrew it and he really blossomed actually when we moved to Baltimore.
0: shared with me, I believe, that he also had, I mean, you've, you've identified some spiritual qualities in terms of compassion and kindness. You've also shared with me he had a profound spiritual connection. Would you say more about that? Sure.
1: As a young child, when I took the, the children to Mass, they insisted on like sitting in the front row, which if you've ever been in a Catholic church, no one does that. <laughs> Their front the front pews are like completely empty. It's this little island of mother and children at the front every week. And he would raise his hands to pray. He didn't fold his hands. He was like Yeah, isn't that weird? Little three-year-old. And I actually always encourage the children to pray for things that other people needed. Right? Mm-hmm. That should be our prayers. So what does our aunt who's lonely need? Right? What does our friend who doesn't have a good job. What do they need? Encouragement, support, right? So mm-hmm. I always encourage them to pray for other people's sins, and um, and he was very he was very profound as a child. Like, so one very telling incident. He was about five years old, and his sister then at that point is like twelve or thirteen, and she had friends over. And he said to her friend, hey, guys, I can't wait to die.
0: Oh, my. So
1: I pulled him aside and I said, what are you talking about? He said, oh, it's true. I can't wait to die uh, because then I'll see my father. I said, obviously, you know that you could never hurt yourself. He said, oh, no, I know all that. He said, but I can't wait to go to heaven where everything's beautiful and there's never any pain. Wow. So he, was, he wasn't was even in kindergarten. And when I told my mom that, she said, oh, My God, you have a special son.
2: How did he maintain that when he was diagnosed and started experiencing the the rough symptoms? Yeah,
1: it's interesting that you ask that because when he first was ill, before he'd even had a diagnosis, he said to me one evening, something's bothering me and I want to tell you. And I said, what is it? I can't pray. Mm -hmm. I said, what do you mean you can't pray? he said, I just can't pray. When I think of prayers, thoughts are all jumbled up and mm. I can't pray. And I always found that very striking, that one of the first things he said about his own mental illness was that it prevented pre- prevented prayer. Yeah. A lot of mentally ill people get religious-osity, <laughs> whatever you want to yep. call like re- religious fanaticism, because many of their thoughts become just really extreme. And That isn't really what happened to him, but um, he did mention more than once that his illness got in the way of his prayers. A lot of his delusions were around someone being harmed, and he literally, if you can believe this, he would weep for the lost souls of the world. Just incredible to watch your 20-year-old athlete cry for the rape victims of the world and tell you, you know that he was filled with sorrow. I mean, it was just an unbelievable, unbelievable experience. Um, so his compassion and those, all those other good qualities were even more extreme.
0: You channeled so much of your uh, passion in terms of advocating for, for Zach. Where is your passion leading you? Uh, what do you see as perhaps the, the next step for you and for all of us here?
1: Well, you know... My ultimate goal, what I would like to be, is the Gloria Allred of mental illness. I would like to pop up in the situation where people are clearly, where things are clearly going wrong and being mistreated. So I would like to make sure that whatever voice I have, it influences people's understanding. Our understanding, of course, and our beliefs drive policy. Policies drive laws. I hope that it leads me in efforts that way. What I currently do is try to just cast down my bucket where I am and help a struggling family with some cash, a few kind words, some encouragement, whatever you can do on a relational one-to-one basis for another family who is living this nightmare.
2: And is a lot of that associated with the the care going on in the Baltimore area? I mean, you you like to keep it local, those people who are in your midst?
1: Our small grants, we do give preference when we give a financial grant to a family who's from Maryland, but that's just, that's almost a moot point because we Mm -hmm. get contacted now from all over the country to help someone financially.
2: Let's walk that back a little bit. Talk about your organization. It's called parentsforcare.org. That's the website. Uh, When did it start?
1: I started Parents for Care in 2014. Uh, Zachariah was still alive. And we had just been through a year of the most hellish hospitalizations, illness, and I went broke. So I said, Uh what can I do to help? What is the key things that are killing families with mentally ill children? Uh, Finances, lack of care, lack of education and understanding, Lack of supports, you know, I call them practical support. First developed a GoFundMe page that we take your pizza money, (laughs) your $25 Friday night pizza money, and Mm -hmm. the more people that give to us, we can roll the money up into a bigger amount that can actually help someone pay their rent. And so we offer one-time small grants. They're um, under $2,000. The average grant is between $800 and $1,000. The average donation is about 20 bucks. We've had just hundreds of donations and we've given out about $40,000. I want to focus on whoever puts themselves in my path.
2: So on the website, it says Parents for Care is a nonprofit org dedicated to advocacy and support for caregivers.
1: Yes, caregivers, because the caregiver has has the biggest burden. The child is sick or the sister or brother or even parent is ill, but the caregiver is living a nightmare of trying to run a hospital in their home, trying to do 10 different mental health jobs with no training, no money, and no support. The better job that the caregiver can do, the better prognosis and outcome for their child. We need to support the caregivers so they can um, really support their sick children.
0: You talk, Laura, about uh, a multifaceted approach uh, to providing care for those uh, families, individuals with mental illness. That leads me to ask, what does healing mean to you?
1: Healing truly, I would say, is recovering whatever is recoverable. If your recovery means you can leave your room and eat dinner with your family when you were too paranoid to do that for five years then you are healing. If your recovery means you can finally work a part-time job with some support, you are healing. If your recovery means you can finally have a friendship or a relationship not super damaged by mental illness, then you are healing. I would say healing is probably recovering whatever you can recover after these damaging illnesses uh, attack your brain.
2: Yeah. Yeah. How did you see healing in in Zach's life?
1: Zachary would get better and then get worse. It was very cyclical. He would tank about three times a year. He uh, only recovered incrementally with great, great help and lots of time and medicine. (laughs) And then he would, you would have a lot of your child back, right? He really, truly, even with impeccable care over the six or seven years that he was, ill, he only got sicker,
2: so. What I like about your response of what does healing mean to you is you, you speak to the incremental moments, eating dinner with your family. Right. You know, that, that's a really beautiful way of responding
0: to that question. So like every dinner Zach, Zach was able to have with you is a moment of healing.
1: Every time he would surface, let's say, from the illness and could communicate and express love and feel love, right? He was healing.
0: Yep.
1: I have a friend whose child did not get in a car. Can you imagine um, what impediments to treatment there are if you cannot ride in a vehicle? Mm-hmm. Uh, ain't no psychiatrist showing up at your house. He's most often left without care. And then if he felt better, you know, if she could get him even reasonably stabilized, he could continue stability. But because she can't even get him to into a facility, into a doctor, he just continues to be sick.
0: I want to go quickly back to your advocacy work and ask the question. You know, a lot of our listeners and people in our um, world are people of faith and faith communities. Uh, you, you identify that that's not an aspect of your life. But as an advocate, a faith community can or should not take in the realm of mental health advocacy. I've heard
1: some very um, touching stories about people, churches have surrounded them with love and caring, right? And Mm -hmm. that's the way it should be. I mean, what would Jesus want us to do? Jesus Mm -hmm. hung out with the lepers and the crazies and the sick people and the Mm -hmm. prostitutes. Those are the people he loves. If there's anything true about Christ, It's that the least will be first, not who we think is the least, but the very, very least. And so I hope that faith communities can uh, get away from the superstitious um, sort of aspect that mental illness has for a lot of people, um, somehow blaming the person for mental illness and really come to an understanding that that family needs their support more than any other family in their faith community, you know, right. Approach it from a scientific, biological, uh, fact-based, um, and loving perspective. So have either of you gentlemen ever seen the movie, Lars and the real girl?
2: No, I have. Well, you've seen
1: it. You have seen Mm -hmm. it.
2: I have. Yes. Mm -hmm.
1: So what happens in that story? He has a complete nervous breakdown, becomes delusional, And the entire community becomes delusional with him. (laughs) We are going to, we're going to, we're going to act like Lars is fine. And they do all the weird stuff that he does to support him. And that movie sticks out to me as an example of just getting behind the family. What do you need? What can we help with? Because it, it means so much. It really means so much to be struggling very very isolated family.
2: In a way, it's like it's into a new normal. Yeah. Where I think some people just want to pray it away and wait for someone to get back to what had been normal, instead of like as you say with the film, adjusting to a situation and meeting the the person where they're at now. Yes. And and just loving them for who they are. Yeah. You know, maybe they do recover. Maybe they get back to what you you know quote unquote would call the way they were when they were normal. But that's not really the point. The point is just loving them for who they are. Yes. Now. Yes. I do want to touch a little more on the advocacy around uh, the caregivers. Let's circle back to where you and Tony met and, and talk about the Facebook group. It started, looks like in about June of 2013. So you're, you're five years in. Could you talk about you know how you started, how you've seen that help people, You know, how's it evolved? Uh, What may be the future? You know, those sorts of things. This is a really important group. Yes.
1: And one one thing that um, is important about a group like this that you have the opportunity that you have to get information to people. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we all know social media is just um, a fountain of information, but you can target your audience and disseminate actual factual information about these illnesses and where to receive help and what kind. The group has grown really just through word of mouth. Um, Everybody knows someone who has a mental illness, whether we like to admit it or not. The group focuses on factual um, articles, some of the um, injustices to the mentally ill and I I think that many people who would call themselves advocates for mental illness don't really even know what the mental illness world is like, right? Right. They think if they um, support their brother with $5, they're an advocate, which is true, Mm -hmm. which is totally true. But um, advocacy is um, lobbying and laws and writing Mm -hmm. op-eds and getting your big mouth all over it to say this is not the way they should be treated, this is not Mm -hmm. the humane thing to do. What I hope the page is doing for them is letting them understand that they have a voice. Um, Take the articles that we distribute, take the information, take our opinions, right? Use our op-eds. If someone writes a great letter and we post it, copy the letter, right? Mm -hmm. Um, whatever just giving them more vocabulary more of a voice in the arena um, so that they can understand really what they're up against and what they're going to have to do to get their child treatment and to help change some of these devastating outcomes
0: one thing laura that has uh, meant a lot to me in this group you have enlightened me for other models to provide advocacy you know i i had been operating under the sense of a recovery model you know in terms of my illness that basically I I needed to present to the world a a, a basic I'm getting better model yes I mean I have a severe mental illness and sometimes it's debilitating you know you and your group are saying you know look With these particular diagnoses, I mean, a lot of them are in prisons, a lot are in jail. You know, the the thing we need to do is to make it a better care system for people at the uh, extreme corners.
1: Yes, I agree. And thank you for saying that. I'm glad that it's helpful. The fact is that this is a pretty desperate situation. This is literally the human rights violations of of our time, of our generation, that Mm -hmm. we have thrown away. Four and five generations of people to the streets, to the gutters, mm-hmm. to prisons and to morgues. We have thrown them away in the name of civil liberties. Your ch- You can't even find out uh, what illness your child has because of HIPAA. It's a violation mm-hmm. of your child's civil rights for you to mm-hmm. ask a doctor to commit him. You know, it's Mm. a violation of Mm -hmm. anyone's civil rights to suggest that you need a hospital. The pendulum has swung so far the other way from the institutionalized, abusive, you know, system that we used to have to now um, there's no care at all. it,
2: It is an interesting thing. I haven't put a whole lot of thought to it, but the way HIPAA actually prevents the caregiver from being able to care in some sense.
1: Oh, uh, definitely prevents you. One story from our situation was uh, my son had an, I had a drug overdose. Sitting at home is about 11.30 at night, and the phone rang, and of course, that's never good news at night, and it was an ambulance driver, and she said, I'm calling to tell you that I have your son in an ambulance, and we're taking him to a hospital. I said, oh my God, where? I can't tell you. I said, what's wrong with them? I can't tell you. I said, okay, oh are you seriously calling to say you're taking my son to an ER? You had to revive him. You're taking him to an ER, but you won't tell me where or what happened. I said, are you a mother? What the hell's going on? Right. I said, can you tell me if I guess? Oh, my God. And so, of course, there's only three things that goes wrong with a 19-year-old, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And so I knew it wasn't sex or rock and roll. And I said, did he overdose or whatever? Yes. So I literally had to get in the car and drive around to the ERs. Um, I realized she was coming from Howard County. And I went down to that hospital and there he was. How wow. ludicrous. You would be sued. That, that you would be sued in other situations, right, for not disclosing. Oh, mm-hmm. I'm calling to tell you that your grandfather had a stroke. Where is he? I don't know. Like, I wasn't allowed, to, after he turned 18, I wasn't allowed to make a doctor appointment with him with a therapist that he had had for a year and a half. The registration lady literally refused to let me make it. And she said, he has to make his own appointment now. He just turned 18. I said, huh. he can't string a sentence together right now. You know, we discount the fact that these people can become incompetent.
2: Laura, how how much do you get into policy You know legislation; those areas as an advocate.
1: Well, um, you know, if you have a .org, only so much of your time can be spent on advocacy. If you're a 3 C, so which we are. So I think like no more than ten percent of your time and money can go to advocacy. So what we have is an advocacy chair, and she does amazing work. She works at the local (laughs) level in Maryland, trying to change the standard of dangerousness, right? You cannot get help until you're a danger to self or others. So she works tirelessly with the Maryland legislature but um, to change those, those terrible um, policies. But on a national level, Parents for Care goes down to Washington, D.C. We've participated in hearings. The Treatment Advocacy Center, which is in Virginia, is also very has a very large presence in washington dc and so the treatment advocacy center will let all of us know when something's coming up we need to write letters phone congressmen and right um try to influence the decision or the policy or whatever's happening right then
0: why don't I you run think- for office laura i'd vote for you oh my
1: gosh that is so <laughs> yeah that's actually hilarious because i have said a bunch of times like now what do i have to be the governor That's right. (laughs) Now, do I have to run for office? Like, the whole world is piled against the mentally ill.
2: There is something to be said for making this a serious platform piece if you're an advocate. If
1: I was the mayor of a major city, the very first thing I would tackle is homelessness. Are you Mm -hmm. kidding me? I mean, it affects everyone's life and welfare, it affects tourism, and not only the poor people who are living under. Uh, out in the elements um, year round, but Mm -hmm. it's totally bad for a city. 75% of those people, I bet you have a serious mental illness. And if you could tackle treatment and shelter, we make laws that a dog cannot be in a hot car. There are laws that you can break the window of someone's car if their dog is in it and he's too hot. But you step right. over your brother on the sidewalk. People have to fall in love again with poor people. They have to fall in love again with the idea that we are our brother's yeah. helper. Until they love that idea, they're mm. not going to work toward it.
0: Well spoken, yeah. We, we're going to have to wrap up here, um, but it's going to be a hard job of editing because you have such wonderful material. That's
1: funny. I appreciate, Tony, I appreciate
0: all your support. I I can't tell you how much it means to me. I mean, I I, I know I follow your page, and of course, mostly the uh, uh, the advocates page. And uh, it's been a it's been a great blessing for me.
1: Well, thank you for this, and thank you, Eric, for the opportunity. I appreciate it.
0: Yes, Laura, th- this is great.
2: I um I think there's some great things in the future that you're going to be able to lead, and I I look forward to being able to to watch it and participate, if at all possible. Thank you for your advocacy and supporting the caregivers. as Well, well as thank you
1: both for caring about um, this situation and these poor people. Um, I really am profoundly touched by people who want to do something for, mm-hmm. for these people who suffer these illnesses. So um, anytime you have a need, call on me. I'm, I'm willing yes. to help.
2: Yes. Thank you, Laura. Thank thanks you, a lot.
1: Thanks so much, guys.
0: So, Eric, we had a wonderful time interviewing Laura Pagliano. Yes. One thing that struck me in our interview is just how profound spiritual conviction she has. She doesn't identify herself any longer as a religious person, but clearly she passed on to her children. She carries with her to this day um, the sort of spiritual values of compassion, kindness, and giving voice to those who have been silenced, the mm-hmm. least of these. And that's clear from what she says and what she does. And there she
2: said, uh, we need to learn again how to love the poor, I think Mm -hmm. she said. It was a really
0: profound statement. Yeah, it's almost something the Pope would say.
2: Yeah. (laughs) She's pope That's what the Pagliano said. (laughs) She's an advocate through and through. Uh, It sounds like she's really got a a corporate job that keeps her really busy, but this is certainly uh, a big part of her life. And uh, just looking over the the parentsforcare.org and all that she's doing there, uh, really being a channel of uh, really kind of mental health care philanthropy, and then giving uh, funding to families who are really in need of, of a financial lift, I think it, a lot of it has to do with early stage engagement with the mental health care system, uh, it looks like she's really helping out there at the beginning, uh, kind of the organic service when people come across her past, a way to be able to be a, a practical support, whether it be monetary or mm-hmm. just being a friend, uh, that, that's really very kind, Laura. And then there is the Facebook page. And I'd like for you to tell me a little bit more about your own engagement with the Facebook page, Tony.
0: Yeah, I've been on the Advocates for People with Mental Illness page for a couple years now. And it has wonderful resources about everything from articles written by people with mental illness, uh, family members who have uh, uh, people in jail uh, that are writing as... uh, Advocates um, a lot of legislative uh yeah uh, announcements and ways we can be uh more engaged in promoting good care for those with mental illness mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of stuff there i like she said, there are almost twenty thousand followers, and I highly recommend you uh, uh apply for that advocates for people with mental illness, yeah. So
2: we wanted to cut this conclusion short a bit because we want the interview to really be, you know, the highlight of this episode. Uh, Laura just has so many good things to say on so many subjects. And um, we also want to just give, you know, people who are part of the Facebook group more time to hear her um, speak to, to her passions, her advocacy, and her experience with, with uh, Zach. So thank you, Laura. Thanks a lot. Tony, our show has come to a close. Now is the time to ask for five-star reviews. Please scroll to the bottom of our podcast homepage, click on five stars, then click on write a review.
0: Help us reach more people seeking emotional healing and the hope of faith. Thanks again for your support of Revealing Voices.
2: Revealing Voices is not a substitute for professional mental health care or participation in a faith community. If your unanswered questions or unanswered prayers leave you feeling desperate or unsafe, we urge you to seek further help. A partial list of outreach resources may be found on our website, revealingvoices.com.
1: Hopkins Symposium, I said the list of people speaking goes like this Genius, 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 Laura, genius, <laughs> genius.